0: Our Old Testament reading today comes from Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statues and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should learn them and do them in the land that you are entering and take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of these peoples who, when they hear all these statues, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our passage this morning from the book of Romans, uh, and we're making good progress. We're already, uh, we'll be in chapter three this morning, we've only been a few weeks. We're starting in... Chapter 2, verses 17 uh, through chapter 3, verses 8. The word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say to the one must not that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, and everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Spirit to help us uh, move um, uh, succinctly and powerfully through this large passage of Scripture. Set my words aflame with the Holy Ghost and our hearts, O God, open like floodgates to receive your truth and be shaken to our core, O God, with, Lord, your powerful message from Scripture here in this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for right or wrong, America for some time has sort of seen itself as the world's police force, and as a result has gotten itself involved in some geopolitical skirmishes or conflicts, and some of them have dragged on for a long time. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one example of an a issue, a conflict that America has been involved in for 40, 50 years now with no end in sight. And America's involvement in the affairs of other nations made sense from that perspective that, despite our shortcomings, America remains the freest and most powerful voice for democracy in the world. Yet, most of the nations around the world do not anymore see the U.S. like an honest broker of democracy. The trust has been broken, and so, Its ability to um, be a force for stability and peace has waned over the years. Well, I mention that because the Jews did not necessarily see themselves as the world's police force, but similarly, they saw themselves as the light of the world. They had the law of God, and this theme that they were to be the light to the nations is repeated over and over in their scriptures. As they read their Bible, they saw that God had given them all of these religious privileges, the law and circumcision and all these things, because it was in the nation of Israel that the best force for good existed. And so they saw themselves as the light of the world. The Old Testament verse from Deuteronomy that Stacy read reveals that from their point of view, the law was a beacon for virtue in the world to the rest of the world. But by the 1st century the things that once set them apart from the rest of the world had become a source of sort of a sort of source of false confidence. So God had given them lots of religious privileges, the law which was God's a transcript of the very mind of God. That's what the law is. If you want to know what like what was what is the purpose for the law because it seems like we spend all of our time talking about how we're like like we're not bound by the law anymore. What is the law? The law is a transcript of God's moral character, and it was given to Israel. What a privilege, right? And they had that. But by the first century, by the time Paul writes this, those privileges had become a sort uh, of false confidence for them. And there are a couple things they were overconfident or had false confidence about, and that was, number one, their reliance on the law. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for on account of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. What an indictment. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God when you break the law? For on account of you, the name of God is blasphemed. You know, Israel hadn't just made a few mistakes, they had sort of failed completely in the task that God had given them to be a light to the nations. And the heartbreaking story of God's people in the Old Testament was their failure to obey the very law that they preached to others. And this irony was not lost on the pagans who despised the Jews for their preachiness. You know, people despise preachy people, especially if you yourself are not living what you're preaching. They are quick to point it out. And in our world, you know, the tabloids clamor to expose high-profile Christian leaders caught in an indiscretion, no matter how dubious the nature of it is, right? And we've seen that. Now, we might feel like they're picking on us because we're Christians, except that they do it to each other. So, you know, I, I talk a lot about sort of Avoiding the fortress mentality or the culture warrior mentality like we're at war with the culture I don't know that any of those things have worked for us Uh, And sometimes I think we can sort of see ourselves as victims always being picked on but the truth is They do it to each other secular people do it to each other And we might ask why do secular people who don't believe in God ostensibly care nothing about any biblical or morality? Why do they devour one another? When someone behaves immorally Well, the answer lies in the fact that, the, that God's law is written on the heart. And people cannot help but to be guided in some way by its moral trajectory. And so when they see certain things like injustice or infidelity or treachery, unfaithfulness, or spouse cheating, they point it out because they cannot help but to recognize it as evil. Not everyone, but many do. It is a standard of morality that operates deep down inside. Now, it does not necessarily give people the ability to obey it. So if the law, in a generic sense, the law of God is operating in the hearts of all human beings, it doesn't mean they have the power to keep it. Nor does it mean they have the power to recognize that that's the law of God working in them. Now, Paul has traveled throughout enough throughout the ancient world to see that not all Gentiles are as rotten as he'd been taught. And he also saw that not all Jews were as pure and holy as they thought. But the Jews did have these three main privileges, and they are these privileges that gave them this confidence, and they are, number one, they belong to a chosen people. Two... Another reason for their confidence was their reliance on the law of God, and three, they had a special relationship with God. Again, the law was good, but it had become a source of false confidence. It made them think that because they had the law, this sort of transcription of God's very moral character, that that exempted them from judgment. They boasted not in God, but they boasted in the law. And we can be that way too, can't we? We can boast in the Bible, in the scriptures, our knowledge of it, our love of it, as a source of pride. When people get loosey-goosey with the word or misquote it, we're quick to correct them. And that's not wrong, you know, that we're quick to point it out. There's nothing wrong with that. But like the Jews, the mere possession or knowledge of it without obedience to it ourselves actually dishonors God and gives people a poor opinion about God. And that's what Paul is getting at with the Jews who are really preachy about the law, but they themselves didn't keep the law. And he said, you not only dishonor God, but you blaspheme his name among the nations. You're giving God a really bad name is what Paul is saying to the Jews. Now, who is Paul actually talking to? He's not talking to anyone in particular. There's not like a guy named Shlomo he's going back and forth with. It's sort of like an imaginary dialogue partner that Paul is talking to. One of, the thing Paul, one of the things Paul does all the time is he anticipates objections to the things that he's saying, and so he takes the part of the objector. And so we'll see that in, a, in just a moment here, but this is who Paul is engaging, a hypothetical dialogue partner. And he's saying, do you dishonor God because you, you break the law and you're blaspheming God among the nations even though you're talking about God. Like the Jews, the mere possession of Scripture without obedience to it actually dishonors God. So this is the first takeaway point, okay? First application point for us. You can have the Bible, you can have Scripture, you can know it, but without it transforming you, it, it doesn't really honor God. Without it bearing itself out in fruit that others can see, it in some ways blasphemes God because you're talking about something that you yourself don't reflect. Now, if Paul wrote that statement today, it might say, you who boast in the Bible dishonor God by violating the Bible, for on account of you, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. You know, the calling of God's people To be a light to the nations hasn't changed. Some people make a real hard and fast distinction between Israel and the church. I don't don't think that's appropriate because if you just replace Israel, the church, with the phrase, the people of God, you don't have any distinction. And so the calling on Israel, not exactly, but many ways, their calling to the world is the church's calling to the world, and that's that's to be a light to the nations. And the calling hasn't changed. The church is to be a light to the nations, And that only happens when our lives are transformed by the scriptures that they glorify God. Not just the mere possession of it, but our lives transformed by it. That's when God is glorified. Secondly, another source of false confidence that the Jews have that Paul is addressing here is overvaluing of circumcision. The overvaluing of circumcision. Now, Maribel and I, some of you know, we got married very young and had kids very young, and when she was pregnant with our firstborn, uh, we didn't know what the sex of the baby was, but we had an argument about circumcision. Because I come from, you know, my family background are circumcised, and her family background, the men, are not circumcised. And we got in a hypothetical argument about the baby that hadn't been born yet. Now, fortunately, our first was a girl, so... By the time we had our son, we had sort of figured that out. But this is what Paul says about circumcision. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this raises an issue of who really are the people of God. What do you mean, Paul, uh, a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly? What, What does that mean? Well, for Paul, this is sort of a shot across the bow of the idea that circumcision alone makes you part of the people of God, which is something by the time Paul writes that had been really in the minds of the average Jew. Now, just some background on circumcision. I know that's what you were excited about coming to church this morning for, right? But circumcision was a cutting of the foreskin of the reproductive organ that marked off the people of God as the nation through whose reproduction the Messiah would come. It was a foreskin that was cut when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. God told Abraham to circumcise his son in fact the word itself covenant comes from a root word meaning to cut and so in the ancient world when people came together to make a covenant they would say let's cut a covenant and maybe in more recent times when people made an agreement you know men would cut their thumb and shake hands because the shedding of blood was somehow you know a way to make the covenant or the agreement you know bound together you know and so circumcision in jews meant that they were god's covenant people the cutting had happened they were part of god's covenant people but if the outward sign this is what paul is saying if the outward sign reflected no inward reality it was meaningless if their outward religiosity so to speak reflected nothing going on on the inside it didn't amount to a hill of beans And Paul's words, he's not creating this out of thin air. He's quoting an Old Testament verse, one of many. This one's in Jeremiah 4 and 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Which is to say that circumcision or no circumcision... If your heart is not converted, the wrath of God was coming on you. That's what Jeremiah's words are declaring. The message for them was circumcision in and of itself has no real value without the heart's transformation. The message for us is tweaked a little bit, but very similar. Outward religiosity is meaningless unless it reflects an inward reality. And I have to say that that's our temptation is to to get the outward sort of appearance together. Right? I mean, it's just like it's just a part of like assimilation, I guess. We're around people, and we, oh, that's this is how they look, this is how they dress, this is how they talk. And so we can we can get the outward appearance of religiosity down really easy. But that's actually not what God is looking at. God is looking at the heart. And that's what God cares about. Yeah, amen. That's what God cares about. Now, um, I, I hope as time goes on, we're able to sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, be freer as a congregation. I would hate to think that being a part of this church means you have to sort of dress a certain way and kind of act a certain way. And God knows that is not what we're about as a congregation. Uh, the way you dress or even your own demeanor, personality, that's not what's important. What we care about is that the spirit of the living God is inside and that your heart is regularly being transformed and renewed by scripture and by the word of God and through the work of the spirit. That's what God cares about. So the question to you is, are you just going through the motions? Have you sort of locked down the appearance of outward religiosity? Or is there something really going on inside? You ought to ask yourself that question. The question is from scripture, we could say it this way, have you been born again? You know, Jesus in John chapter 3 told Nicodemus, arguably the most religious person in all of Israel, that phrase, a ruler of the Jews, if you unpack it, it actually meant that he was the chief teacher of religion in all the land. And Jesus says to this guy, you must be born again, right? I mean, if you're Nicodemus, you're thinking, me? I have to be born again? What, what are you even talking about? And Jesus is saying, yeah, this, yeah, it's, it's not going to cut it. You must be born again. That which is born of flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Have you been born again? When you're born again, the spirit, you know what it does? It circumcises the heart. That's the work of the Spirit in the new birth. The Spirit goes to work not on your outward appearance so much, but on the inward, on the heart. So all of this raises, don't rely on the law, don't have overconfidence in circumcision, and all of this raises, though, an objection, again, a hypothetical objection from a dialogue partner that Paul is engaging in, An objection as to what advantage is there then in even being Jewish at all? You can understand the objection, right? You can understand the concern that Paul is talking about. And Paul is actually debating himself. You wanna know why? Because Paul is a Jew. Paul came from this rich Jewish heritage. He was a Benjamite, he said, circumcised on the eighth day, as pertaining to the law, he kept it perfectly. I mean, this is Paul's own words, and so it's Paul the Christian sort of wrestling with Paul the Jew. I mean, he's asking this question for himself. What advantage is there anyway of being Jewish? Was all this history in vain? All the covenants, the law, circumcision, our nation, was it all a lie? And he asked this question in verse chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew What is the value of circumcision? And he answers it, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, which is to say that it seems like Paul has been sort of like, you know, taking an ax and chopping down the the base of the tree of the law and circumcision, but he wants to say they're deeply meaningful. The law, circumcision, very, very important things. But the Jews' possession of these things, which were signs that God had entrusted them for the purpose of being a light to the nations, that that had fallen down. They had failed. They had failed God's trust. God gave them. Have you ever ever given something to someone? You entrusted a a goal or a task or something to someone else and they let you down? They didn't do with it? what they were supposed to do with it? Maybe it was one of your kids, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, a family member. You know, you gave them something, and they didn't do with it what they were supposed to do. You entrusted them, and they violated that trust. Well, that's what happened. God entrusted the nation of Israel with these privileges, these things, and they violated that trust. Because even though they had safeguarded, so here's the deal, they safeguarded the tradition for many, many generations. The oracles of God, the law, the prophets. For so many centuries, they failed to recognize its real meaning. That's what's important. The real meaning behind the law and the prophets and the oracles, not just them themselves for their own sake, but what they represent it's true meaning. And as a result, that they rejected the true meaning of all of those things, they rejected, you know what? They rejected the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus came, they couldn't recognize it. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't receive it. Because the law and circumcision were just like, you know, it's like scaffolding, you know? And the scaffolding was... You know only existed to to build up the building the scaffolding that was of no importance itself and so all of those things existed for the purpose of true religion of the heart and when the gospel came they couldn't hear it they couldn't repent not all jews not all jews rejected the gospel but many did and in paul's mind they were living a lie by pretending to be really holy And this raises the question of their faithfulness, and this is really what Paul is getting at. This is really what this is all about, their faithfulness. Has it all been in vain? Was God mistaken to entrust them? Should God abandon his covenant with them and start afresh? And the answer is a firm negative. God's faithfulness is not determined by our unfaithfulness. This is the point Paul wants to make. That the faithfulness of God is not predicated on our faithfulness as if God is like going tit for tat with us. Well, you didn't pray today, so I'm not going to protect you. You didn't spend, you know, 20 minutes in your devotional and scripture this morning, so I'm not with you. Like, that's just not how God is. That's not who God is. That's how we are, but that's not how God is. And Paul wants to communicate the faithfulness of God in spite of our faithlessness. When we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. And this is where Paul puts his argument into fourth gear. So, if from the first chapter of Romans, Paul was in first gear, third gear, maybe second. Maybe I should say third gear because you know we've got like you know a bunch of chapters left. But he's he's you know he's he's shifting here. He's picking up speed. Because you remember in chapter one, he was talking about the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now he's talking about the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is revealed. When people are unfaithful and God remains true, what is revealed is God's faithfulness. So God shines when we fail. God shines when we fail. Look at verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means and so the fact that when we sin God doesn't abandon us reveals something about the mysterious character of God we often don't think about God as having faith or keeping faith but that's exactly what we're supposed to see here that God himself is faithful This this virtue commended to us in the scriptures for us to be faithful, God himself is faithful. God himself keeps his covenant promises. God himself is faithful. Even when we're unfaithful, when we violate the covenant, God keeps up his end of the agreement. Now that's different than what some churches teach. Some churches teach, you slip up, boom, God's right there to get you. Or sort of God's faithfulness is predicated on your faithfulness. And Paul is anticipating another response to that. There are a couple of objections even to that. Logical objections. He says in verse 5, But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? There's one objection. Another objection is, and why do not evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So let me unpack these two objections real quick. The first objection he addresses is, if the Jews could repent only by the grace of God, then it would seem unrighteous, according to Paul's Jewish opponents, for God to pour out his wrath on those who didn't repent, since as sinners they're unable to respond to him. This is essentially the argument that some of us have heard. Essentially, how can God, if, if we're, we, you know, a theological term, total inability, sometimes we say total depravity, if sinners because they're dead in sins and trespasses are unable to repent in and of themselves, then how could God condemn them? That's Paul is anticipating that objection. I mean, it's right there in Scripture, right? I mean, these theological issues, like Paul, is, it's already in the mind of Paul in the first century. And we've heard people say things like that too, haven't we? He'll unpack that later in the book when we get into chapters 9. When he talks about election, he sort of gets into that. The second objection he addresses is, Some of Paul's opponents thought that Paul was teaching a doctrine of cheap grace, that God sort of receives more glory when Christians do evil and then are forgiven. And Paul emphatically rejects that also as slander. This is really the charge of antinomianism. Now, I'm getting theological here for a second. You'll bear with me, please. But this is really the charge of antinomianism, essentially, that Paul, if you're saying that the grace of God, the faithfulness of God persists, Even when we're unfaithful, God does not immediately break covenant with us. It sounds like you're giving people permission and even encouraging them to sin. And Paul says, nope, it's not what I'm doing. He says, that's slander. And then he says, their condemnation is just (laughs) like they should be condemned because what they're saying is completely wrong. Right? That's not what Paul is saying either that Paul is teaching people it's okay because of the grace of God to break the commandments. Here's the deal. Here's what's at stake in both objections, that how can God be just in judging sinners who are sort of dead in their trespasses and sins, and how can you say that God's justice and his faithfulness shines when we sin, What's at stake is the justice of God, and one of the things we're going to see as we move forward in Romans is Paul wants to defend the justice of God and the justness in God when he justifies us, but we're not there yet. Paul does respond to this, though. Actually, in verse 4, backing up, he says, Let God be true and everyone a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now we're out of time, and we're sort of leaving things off with a cliffhanger. Will Paul get God off the hook for the charges or not? Maybe some music should be played. We'll see that next week, because that's what Paul is doing is creating some tension here because the gospel of grace is really a radical idea that was new. Some people say, well, the Jews had always believed in salvation by grace alone. I believe it's there in the Old Testament, but I believe that the popular Jewish religion of Paul's day, it was not present, and that's why he's addressing it. So suffice it to say as we close here, and I leave you with this cliffhanger, that we are also called to be a light to the nations. But the brightness of our shining is not an outward religiosity where we look like we love God. It's the inner reality of a converted and transformed heart that loves and trusts in Jesus and longs to pursue and live in that life of holiness and righteousness by the grace of God. And as Christians, that inward beauty reflects in us when the Spirit is shining in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this good word. And we, Lord, we know that uh, some of these things are in-depth, are intricate, detailed points, uh, Father sharpen our hearts and our minds that as we leave we would Lord ruminate in the challenge given to us by the apostle Paul this morning that we cannot merely rely and trust in outward things even in our even in our tradition and our rich theology we cannot trust in those things alone Father we pray that you would touch us And you would help us to live out what is on the inside. Lord, the work of the Spirit bearing fruit in our hearts and in our actions. That the name of Christ may be glorified in our world around us. In his name we pray. Amen.